I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and it's the morning after Election Day. I'm here at the Texas Capitol, having just left the offices of Joe Strauss, the Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives, words I'll only be able to say for a few more weeks. Speaker Strauss isn't coming back as the presiding officer of the House next session. He announced about a year ago that this would be his last term representing District 121. After more than 13 years in office, he's heading home to San Antonio. As he prepares to exit, let's remember how he got here. Ten years ago, he and fewer than a dozen Republicans orchestrated the overthrow of then-Speaker Tom Craddock. Joe Strauss had been a backbencher, rarely on the front or back mic in his couple of sessions in the ledge, but he was the rump group's choice to succeed their iron-fisted leader, and for five terms he ruled the 150-member chamber, tying the all-time record for longest-serving Speaker. In that powerful job, arguably the most powerful in Texas not popularly elected, he's been the object of curiosity, envy, admiration, and scorn. Seen at times as too weak and too strong, too establishment and too much outside the mainstream, too moderate and not nearly as moderate as he presented or we believed him to be, too eager to engage his enemies and not nearly eager enough. Speaker Strauss held sway over a house that grew more conservative year over year, and on his watch, the Republican majority expanded to nearly a supermajority, though that was never enough to satisfy his critics. In any case, the results of the 2018 election have reversed that momentum for now. Speaking of those results, that's why I invited myself over to the Speaker's office. I wanted to ask him about what happened on Election Day, what was, relatively speaking, a bloodbath for Republicans in the Texas legislature, and what happens next, what the political environment of 2018 means for the 2019 Texas legislature and for the state going forward. The conversation you're about to hear is the first we'll post as part of a new podcast my colleagues at the Tribune and I are launching formally in January. It's called Point of Order, and if you've spent meaningful time around our ledge or any similar body, you get the reference. A point of order is a procedural tool, a tactic employed with sincere intent or with mischief or both to slow the proceedings down long enough to determine whether things are being done according to the rules. You call a point of order when you believe or want to believe someone or something is off. You're asking, essentially, are we doing this right? Nothing wrong with that. Isn't that the job of elected officials and of the voters and of journalism? To ask whenever a law is passed or a policy is set or tax dollars are being spent, are we doing this right? That will be the point and the mission of the Point of Order podcast, to hold the legislature, lawmakers, and the bureaucracy to account through a series of newsmaker interviews that take you inside, behind, and underneath the politics and issues, the rules and traditions, the turning of gears and the pulling of strings that power state government. We'll see you each week once the gavel comes down in a few months. For now, I hope you enjoy this preview of Point of Order, my sit-down with Speaker Joe Strauss, recorded live early in the morning of November 7th, 2018, in his office at the Texas Capitol in Austin. Point of Order is presented by H&K Strategies. Around the clock and around the world, Hill & Knowlton Strategies harness the power of the public in today's uncertain times. Learn more at hkstrategies.com. And by the Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas. Private colleges, public purpose. Texas's independent colleges and universities are as diverse as the students and communities they serve. Learn more at icut.org and by Susto Mescal, 
Susto Mezcal is an artisanal mezcal crafted in Oaxaca, Mexico from 100% agave. Susto is the first super premium mezcal produced and marketed by Austinites. More at sustomezcal.com. Mr. Speaker, good morning. Good morning. Thank you Welcome. for making time for us. Happy to see you. I want to ask you about last night's election results to begin. Uh, given what happened, given the fact that you're planning to leave the legislature, do you feel like Bruce Willis at the end of an action movie <laughs> jumping out of the building before it explodes? <laughs> Not at all. Um, this doesn't all... confirm your decision to leave? What happened yesterday? Well, my, my decision to leave was made over a year ago. Right. Um, you couldn't see and this I'm, coming. I wasn't, I wasn't terribly surprised by the results last night. Um, something had to had to give sooner or later. But but Politics something something changes. having yeah but something having to give is not a historic win for the Democrats. I can't think of a time, and there may not have been a time when the Democrats picked up this many seats. This is a lot of seats. Well, they didn't have many to pick up, you know, for many years. Well, so, fair, but, but 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 this is pretty significant. But Republicans picked up a lot of seats um, in 2010. Correct. I, mean, I kept before this election, people were you know asking for. A, what I thought would occur. And I said, well, who knows? Um, all I know for sure is that the experts are always wrong. And there are um, no longer experts, 20, Mr. In, Speaker. In 2010, I remember the, the consultants and people around Austin were saying Republicans would, um, would pick up maybe seven or eight seats. Right. And ended up winning, what, 23? 23. So let's remind people, for the benefit of those who may have just arrived at the party, let's remind people what happened at that time. So you became speaker with the 2009 session. Yes. So the first election after your speaker of the House is the 2010 election. This is the Tea Party year, although we didn't necessarily know what that meant heading into it. It was the reaction to the first two years of Obama's oh, president, president Obama. It was the first Obama midterm. And yes. so again, we experts in big air quotes thought Republicans are going to win a high single digit, maybe a low double digit number of seats. You were at 76, 74 Republicans to Democrats in the House at that point when you became speaker. Yes. And so you win 23 seats. And two party switchers. 99, 51, and then Alan Ritter and Aaron Pena switch parties following the election, and you go to 101, historic high, never before, never since, right? I've seen 76, 74. I've seen 101, 49. The two polls. And then the last, right. and then the last few have kind of settled into this right. more or less, you know, very strong, but not a supermajority. But, but nearly, nearly a supermajority. And so your sense is that 2018, in the end, will be viewed as something like an inverse of 2010. Similar, to, like, similar not, to what happened. Not quite, not quite the same. First midterm, a reaction to national politics as much as to state politics? It was close to the same. If you look at some of the races, and I haven't reviewed all of them, but um, if you look at the races where Republicans in previously not close districts Right. barely eked out a victory, Right, um, we came very close to having what happened in uh, 2010 in reverse, but it didn't quite happen. Right. Ross Ramsey, my colleague who you know, refers to these guys as the Barelys. Jeff Leach, Matt Shaheen, Jonathan Stickland, your pal. Right. Uh, uh, these guys all uh, barely won. Dwayne Bohack barely won. Bunch of people didn't barely win, they barely lost, and yes. then a bunch of people lost by a significant who, margin, including who some who we did not project were in trouble. That's right. That's right. exactly right. It yeah. was, there were many close races where um, they weren't predicted to be. Yeah. So you, you need a job, or may need a job soon, since you're not going to have this one? Well, noon, was it, 12 
12 noon on January the 8th. But yeah. who's counting, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like you're in Alcatraz my, crossing days off a calendar. My wife has an app with a countdown Does timer on it. Work, I, working I don't. I'm, I'm staying busy. And so you may need a job. Let's put you in journalism for a second. Write the headline. Oh, you don't want that. Come on. Write the, I do. Well, you know what? We, we, we need all the help we can get. Write, write the headline. What's the headline from last night? It was that um, when it all cost politics... Um, may be effective enough at the statewide level, but it creates carnage down ballot uh, in a changing state where the, that's too long for a headline, but where a um, Republican party and the state of Texas are moving in opposite directions. Where the Republican party and the state of Texas are moving in opposite directions. So do you mean win at all cost at the national level or win at all costs across the capital? Both. But yes, both. I think, yeah. the, I think a lot of the politics um, that have been aimed at primary voters in recent cycles didn't translate to the, to the big turnout we saw uh, in this November election. And I think going forward, if, if we still want to focus um, our energies on small issues that resonate in primaries, but not in November. It's not going to be a good thing for Republicans going forward. So one big loser, or a big loser, in this election cycle is base politics. Yes. If you play to the base... D divisive, right. fear-mongering, right. um, borderline racist in some cases. Politics is not a, not a way to win over yep. a growing, younger, diverse population. Name names, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> No consequence to you. You're not going to be on the ballot again, so you no, can't well, worry I mean, about I'm, the political I've consequences. Tried, I've tried to never be about name-calling But I want to know, but, but you just did say fear-mongering and borderline racism. I want to know who you're talking about specifically. Well, I mean, the rallies that are conducted by the White House. Do you um, believe the president's a racist, Mr. Speaker? Well, I believe, I believe that some of his um, rhetoric is extremely divisive. It's dark. Um, it's not unifying. Um, it's, it's not uh, factual in many cases. And I just, think, I just think that's the wrong direction for the leader of any party or the leader of any democracy or country. And, um, and I think that, that last night was the beginning of a correction for that. I hope it was. So you believe the election results in Texas were to some degree, I mean, all politics is local, the great cliche that is a cliche because it's true. All politics is local, but... The election results in Texas were at least partly a rebuke of Republican leadership nationally, beginning with the president. I think so. In a lot of places, yes. I think absolutely. That yeah. has to be true. Was it not necessarily a rebuke of the leadership of the Republican Party in Texas and of this legislature, of the Senate, of the House, of the statewides? If the Democrats had their best election cycle that I can remember or anyone can remember, back to when the Democrats won elections routinely or at all, 12 pickups in the Texas House, two pickups in the Texas Senate, a whole bunch of barelys in the House, and the statewide races were all significantly closer than they typically are. Single-digit races for the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the ag commissioner. Isn't that, yes. a, rebu isn't that a rebuke of the Republican leadership in Texas well, as well as nationally? Well, they, they won. Um, but I think you have to give a lot of credit to Beto's campaign. It was energetic. It was positive. I think he won over a lot of voters who may not have even agreed with him on all of the issues that he um, talked about and positions he took on the campaign trail. 
but there was an infectious enthusiasm and something that was a lot uh, brighter and more optimistic than what his opponents have been offering. So I think, I think that campaign, because it was so contested and because it was such a phenomenon around the whole country, yep. um, I think you have to give him a lot of credit for what happened last night. So you don't say that Dan Patrick owns the fact that Dan Patrick only won by five points or that Greg Abbott winning by only 13 points as opposed to the typical 18, 19, 20 or more, and that Republicans generally faring less well own that? You think this is well, about I do something think, else? I do think that our Republican leaders um, need, to, um, need to broaden their agenda and they need to offer a more optimistic vision of the future and how they're going to help Texans. It's got to get beyond um, sanctuary cities and voucher bills and bathrooms. Yeah. The, the meat and potatoes issues that you've talked about at the beginning of every session, I know you've been speaking. Yes, yeah. The I mean, business of the people, that's where you think they should and be I'm, focused. I'm going to give the governor some credit here for now beginning to, to you know, focus and take on school finance. Um, but we've got to address the issues that really matter to a growing, dynamic, vibrant state. Um, we've got to We've got to really focus and make investments, smart investments, in public schools, in our colleges and universities, in our workforce, in our transportation system, in our natural resources, um, or we're not going to have the vibrant economy that we have today for uh, the population that everyone's predicting we're going to see in a few years. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're on our way to having 50 million people living in this state uh, before you blink your eyes. You called out Beto O'Rourke. Uh, a Democrat who ran for the United States Senate. Did you vote for Beto O'Rourke on Election Day? Um, you know, I split my ticket. Um, okay. And a lot more than I ever have before. Um, I, voted, I voted for candidates, as I wrote in, in an op-ed just before the election, I voted for candidates um, less this time for their positions on issues and more on what I perceive to be their character, and more on what I perceive to be their ability to lift up the people they wanted to represent. We're living in a pretty dark time in politics, and it's deliberately made that way by certain people. Um, so I voted for those who I thought offered a more um, optimistic, upbeat um, way of governing. And did way, you, did and you way vote of, for Beto, Mr. Speaker? Well, I don't really talk about who I voted for or who I didn't vote for. Um, but it would I'm say, glad, some, it would say something straight, about the degree very, to which you live in the, in the words that you're saying, right? Well, you can draw conclusions if you want, but I, you know, I, I clearly um, a lot of people did vote for Beto. You're just not going to tell me if you're one of no, them? No, and I don't think it matters who I voted for. I'm one out of over 8 million people who voted yesterday. Yeah. Um, so if I ask you if you supported the governor and the lieutenant governor, are you going to give me the same answer? I'm going to give you the same answer, yeah. I mean, I voted, I, I voted a split ticket. Um, which I always have, but it was more split this time than it ever has been. I'll, right. I'll admit that. Right. Does the vision of government that the governor has articulated, you called out the governor, you complimented him for his mm -hmm. commitment to school finance. I assume you're talking about, at least in part, this leaked presentation where the governor's office is seriously talking about different ways forward. Yes, on, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I, that I endorse the specifics of it, but I think it's a very encouraging sign that he knows and wants to um, to deal with the issue. To, to, move, to move forward with it. Yes, it's yeah. been neglected for far too long. The last session of the legislature, the House 
voted 120 votes for a solid first step for school finance reform, adding $2 billion to the system, making some simplifications right. to the formulas. 120 votes went nowhere in the other chamber. Well, the other chamber and the leader of the other chamber has said, would say, and will say that the problem was not that they rejected your plan, but that your plan was uh, not uh, credible as presented, that the funding mechanism was not a legitimate funding mechanism. I'm not telling you something you haven't um, heard a million times. Hey, look, we're, we're all open to funding mechanisms, but you've, you've got to want to make the investment to make it. And You um, believe that the other chamber did not want to make it? I think it was clear they didn't want to make an investment. Right. Let me come back to the governor. Do you believe the governor's vision for Texas is the right vision? Do you subscribe to the governor's vision for how the state should be run? Well, it needs governor. to be the right vision. I think he has, I think he has great potential to be um, an even better leader than he's been. Um, and I think some of the results of the election last night, uh, I noticed in some of, the, some of the victory speeches, showed a humility that I haven't seen um, from some of our leaders in the past. Um, and I think that's a good thing. You don't think it's election night humility that then translates into we're going to go back to rough and tumble, slash and burn politics after well, it, the election? Could, Doesn't it, that typically happen? Well, it could, but it also could lead to a shift in thinking and a more pragmatic approach. Right. You're hoping I mean, going that forward, happens. I hope so. Yeah. I always hope for that. That's the way I tried to govern here. Right. Um, when, you, when you have two sides that don't agree on something, but you've got a, um, a give and a take, and yeah. got to, you try to work toward compromise, and I've always tried to do that. So he won by 13 and a little bit more points over uh, Sheriff Valdez. The lieutenant governor beat Mr. Collier by five. I mean, really not very many at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, the closest race for lieutenant governor since John Sharp and David Dewhurst, I have to think. Yep. Um, do you think that you'll see humility from Lieutenant Governor Patrick as a consequence of this election cycle? Um, well, he said so in his remarks last night or his statement. Yep. He used the word humility, I think. So you're hopeful about where this heads I am as, hopeful. as it relates to him and I his am leadership hopeful. in I mean, the look, Senate the, as well. The voters, the voters decide. Right. And the voters sent a signal. They sent a really strong message last night. And if you're a Republican leader and you're heading into um, a session in January, I think you'd have to keep what they, what they said last night yeah. in mind. Yeah. Because, the, the, you know, I hate to say it, it's probably good for your business, but as soon as the votes were counted last night, the next cycle begins. Yeah, I think it began actually before the votes were counted, in fact. The lieutenant governor's vision of Texas has been, it seems to all of us out here in the world, a different vision for Texas than you have. Parts overlap, but parts diverge. So if you were guiding the lieutenant governor's work leading the Senate next time, I'm sure the first person he wants to hear from today to give him <laughs> advice is you. Yes, if you're I'm guiding sure, the lieutenant sure. governor's work as far as the Senate goes, what would your advice be to him specifically? Um, well, I've tried not to get into his business. Oh, get into it. But I, God knows I mean, he's I gotten hope, into yours, Mr. Speaker. Yes, God he, knows. Well, he has. And so has the governor, by has, the way. Let, let, let us acknowledge that both the governor and lieutenant governor were, were not 100% kind to you at the end of the last session as it related to many of the issues that were resolved by that legislature. Well, it all worked out for me just fine. And, well, you're heading back to San you gotta, Antonio. Maybe that's politics, fine. Well, politics is a tough, right. is a tough business. Right. And I've been in it a long time. Um, there are always conflicts and disagreements. Yeah. Um, but I always stood my ground and I was always willing right. to engage. I was always willing to compromise. I was always willing to listen. Well, engage with me right now, Mr. Speaker, get into the Lieutenant Governor's business. What would you tell him is the way forward for him as it relates to leading the Senate? I, I would tell him, I would tell him to listen more and talk less 
to include as senators more um, in the process of solving the problems, uh, the state's biggest challenges. Right. And I'd, and I'd start that list with school finance, um, and I'd follow it closely with um, the need for, for stronger higher education in this state, for workforce uh, development, um, and, for, and for investments in our infrastructure and making sure that our, that our water supplies are adequate and that our water quality is good. Right. Let me ask you about the president, come back around to the topic of President Trump. You have spoken out when you've disagreed with President Trump. In fact, I think as we sit here today, you're heading off to receive an acknowledgement from a national organization for your comments around the family separation story. That was some uh, place where you broke, not the only place, where you broke with this president. You've Mm -hmm. talked about the importance of uh, toning down rhetoric and bringing people together, which is itself breaking with this administration. Has, you're a Republican. You've been a Republican a lot longer than some people in this building have been Republicans. Well, I'm, I'm getting older, too, yeah. Yeah, but some yeah, people right. who criticize you, I've, I've always noticed that a lot of the people, some people who criticize you, let's say, for not being conservative enough or uh-huh. Republican enough were not themselves Republicans as long as you've been Republican. That's probably true. Um, a Republican is in the White House. If you're a Republican for as many years as you've been, you should be happy about the fact that a Republican's in the White House and not a Democrat. Um, has Donald Trump been good for Texas? Leaving aside the tone, leaving aside the tweets, leaving aside the rhetoric from a policy standpoint, what a lot of Republicans similar to you in tone and disposition have had to do is wrestle with the trade-off. Yeah, the economy is great. Jobs are great. You know, all this is great. But in order to get that, we've had to get this over here. Has the trade-off been worth it as far as you're concerned? Well, some of the policies have been good for Texas. Um, But any of the Republican presidential candidates from the last cycle, I think it would have, would have been good on a policy, um, on the policy side for the state. Um, I don't think you can look at President Trump and put the tweets and all the negative rhetoric aside because so much of his presidency is about just that. Total package. Yeah. Right. And, and um, I think that, that that was a big overhang over the national election last night. Um, and um, interesting that, that we lost a lot of Republican governors in states that were very important to the, um, the close results that, that ultimately put um, President him, Trump in the White in House. Office. Michigan, Wisconsin, Wisconsin right? Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania. You know, yeah. I mean, Pennsylvania was largely a Republican. I mean, the, there the effect was felt more at the congressional level, but yes, granted, you know, Nevada which is a state that Secretary Clinton won, but again, flipped both the governor's office and the, mm-hmm. and the Senate. So you think that that's, that's really the takeaway around the country is that it is a total package and that you get the good with the bad, but the bad really it is. itself Yes, up. and, and I'm, I'm, not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna criticize the president for the policies that have been good for my state. Um, just as I, I, I refrain from criticizing President Obama on you know, many, many occasions when that could have been easy to do. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just think the, the, the tone, the rhetoric, the divisiveness, the ugliness, the, the fearful politics that are being practiced um, intentionally are, are very, are destructive to the fabric of our democracy. And I think yeah. that's, that is an overriding theme that um, began to be rejected last night. Are you one of those who says that the really bad uh, headlines of the last couple of weeks, these horrible incidences of uh, uh, violence, 
whether it's the mailing of pipe bombs or the yeah. horrible deaths at the temple in, uh, in Pittsburgh, can be traced back either with a dotted line or a straight line to the environment created by the rhetoric you're referring to? Because this has obviously been a big topic of conversation. Well, I believe that, that political leaders have, have the obligation and the duty to try to bring people together. And I also believe that human nature um, is a is a um, you know is is a is a very um, volatile um, thing that has to be watched carefully. There are yeah. unstable people out there, and to the extent that political leadership matters um, and communication matters, um, setting off people that are close. To close enough to being set off and easily set off uh, needs to be watched. You're not willing to go the rest of the way and say that this is on him? No, no, I can't say that. I don't think, I don't think any, I, I don't think he enjoyed seeing what was happening. Well, who would? He said he wouldn't. Who he would? didn't. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do think some, he gets carried away with the rhetoric and um, not everybody can handle that. It has an impact. Mr. Speaker, you've been Speaker for five uh, terms, five sessions, um, tying the record, right? Uh, amazing to think about what began on Polo Road in West Austin, right? Now has, has resulted in, you know, uh, one for the books. Why was Texas and why is Texas better for your speakership? Surely you've gotten into the self-reflection frame of mind here as you wind down. I haven't really spent a lot of time in, in the self-reflective mode yet. Um, but I'm, I'm if I'm proud of anything, it's more more than the policies I could reel off in mental health or in funding the water plan or um, any number of, of things that we've accomplished here. Um, what I'm most proud of is the way we've tried to govern and how we've tried in the House, which really wasn't built to be um, as deliberate as I think we have been. Yeah. Um, but to try to encourage deliberation, to try to encourage cooperation um, to, you know, get the governing part right. And on our best days, I think we did a really fine job of that. The, the when lower I, when chamber. I came, when I came into this yes. office, it was a pretty volatile place. Right. And, um, you know, that's the nature of the House of Representatives. But um, I think all in all, I feel really good about, um, about presiding over a much different house from session to session. Um, was 76, 74, then it went to 101, as we discussed earlier, um, then kind of settled at, at 95. But there was a lot of turnover along the way. Well, in fact, many people in the legislature today were not in the legislature when you became speaker. That's correct. Right. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I, I feel, you know, pretty good about bringing people along and trying to set an example yep. of how to govern effectively um, with with, you know, with humility. I'm interested in what you say about the tone and the style of governance as a takeaway from these five sessions as speaker, because traditionally in a lower chamber, you have a lot more kind of, you know, uh, uh, activity, uh, uh, rancor, right? The said often that the house is the hot coffee cup and the Senate, the more refined upper chamber where apparently they all drink their drinks with their pinkies pointed <laughs> in the air. That, that was the, the design, yes. Right, that's the saucer that cools the cup. Right. Typically, mm -hmm. the House is the hot coffee cup and the Senate is the saucer. And in Texas, it's been the reverse, at least 
over the time that you've been speaking. Most of the time, yes. The House has really been, I mean, you know, March 1st of the 2017 session when Sanctuary Cities blew up seemed like a hot coffee cup. That was a, that was a regret. Right. Right. That, that was a, that was one of those moments that I yeah. wish we could have done over. But typically, the t- it, so you would call out the tone specifically uh, uh, as as a, uh, a positive for the time that you the you, tone you, the you tone were. and the and the maturity yeah. to focus first and foremost on the issues that really matter yeah to get our priorities straight right and um, I I feel good that we that we did that yeah. Regrets. You mentioned March first. You mentioned sanctuary cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you say, "I wish that had gone differently." You're the speaker. If you wanted it to go differently, why didn't it go differently? Well, I, I put some of that on on me. Yeah, I mean, I I tried, um, I tried, and then I saw the house kind of throwing up its hands. Um, could I have inserted myself one more time late that night? You know, looking back, I probably should have, should have tried. What, what should you have done specifically? Uh, made it so that the Schaefer, the so-called Schaefer Amendment, mm-hmm. which took this legislation out a couple of more clicks to the right. Yes. You feel like you should have inserted yourself as a defense or a block against that? Well, I probably, I could, I could have, I think. Yeah. Looking back, um, I should have tried. I mean, but I did try to bring people together. I did try to, you know, to to convene the different viewpoints and try and try to encourage um, both sides of that debate to to work something out. Right. And um, there were a lot of a lot of people, a lot of um, messages going back and forth. And ultimately, it just it just sort of broke. It broke down. And and I'm sorry that it did. But again, you're the guy in charge, right? I mean, yeah. you know how this works. Whether yeah. you're the right. yeah. I mean, listen, whether you're responsible or not, you get to blame. Whether you, you're responsible or not, you don't get the credit. That's how that's, it sucks to be the boss, right? That's it, it. It's that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. But I don't. I don't have a lot of regrets. Um, I sure I made a lot of mistakes. If you're in this office and you're called on to make as many decisions as you have to make, um, you're going to make some mistakes. That's yeah. just part of it. But you can't. Yeah. You know, I try not to beat myself up or look right. back. Well, you know the tension here, Mr. Speaker, and it would be for any speaker, but particularly knowing you as I do, you've said from the very beginning, from before the beginning, mm-hmm. I want to rule the House by the will of the members. So when you say I'm going to let the members set the course mm-hmm. for the work that they do, you are relinquishing implicitly or explicitly some control over directing every last step. But there are people who want you completely counter to that to exert your leadership and to insert yourself in moments when the place is fixing to blow up as March 1st, yes. one example of many others. So it really yeah. is this tension between the vision you've set out and what some people think they want in the heat of the moment. There is, but there's also a big difference between, an important difference between leadership and influence and control. And I think a good leader has to know that difference, know, know his place in that order and, and try to get it right more often than wrong. Yeah. Tell me another regret besides March 1st Gosh, of the 2017 I know session. I'm on the couch here, but I didn't really realize we're going here. Right. Um, Let the record show you're still seated and not... Yes, reclined. You're not reclined. Um, My hourly rate you know, goes up if you recline, <laughs> so... I, I really don't have a lot of regrets. Um, you know, as I said, I made a lot of mistakes, but I don't dwell on them. Right. And I don't dwell on my regrets either. It's just, it's right. been a fascinating 10 years here. And yeah. 10 years is a long time to do this job. Well, and as I, we said, it's, I, histor- I felt, it's historic. 
Well, and I, and I felt really good about the prospects for a sixth term, but I didn't want to be one of those guys who stayed around just because he could. Hung around too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I've, you know, I've got, I've got some, I've got plenty of things I want to do in the future. Right. Yeah, I'm going to push you on the regrets thing. I'm sorry. Um, surely, you, th- there's something that you would go back and do differently, something that you did that you would undo, or something that you didn't do that you wish you had done, more than just prevent the Schaefer Amendment over 10 years. There was nothing well, else in your leadership. Evan, that you I know would it's say? I, not. I really don't have a. I mean, I, I. You don't regret not getting school finance fixed. You don't regret. Well, we tried. We passed repeatedly, right. and we did what we could do. Yeah. And I feel good about that. And that, that's. I feel good that about the the most important priorities we had, we at least attempted. Right. Um, and it, it, our system requires both both sides of this building to agree yeah. and a governor to come in and endorse sign you could only do your part that's right and i feel i feel good about it i feel i feel like i did my job um with some competence and sense of fairness right um and that the members were um certainly they're going to be critical of anybody who does this job um but and I by feel, the way, members feel, on both sides, you were, I mean, let, let the record show that on any given day, both Democrats and Republicans were mad at you. Oh, sure. Right? It was both That's, sides. Right. But they weren't mad enough at me to not vote for me again. No, no, no. But the point <laughs> is, I think what you're, what you're describing is, this, is a style That's of leadership, leadership. that That's right. You, sometimes you make this side mad. Sometimes you make that yes. side mad. And that may mean that you're doing your job. Right. If you make everybody just a little bit disappointed, but right. you get the priorities done, that's, that's kind of the, the right. best you can hope for. I, I buy the argument that on school finance, you all made an attempt at least because we watched in real time those attempts play out. Did it more than once. Did it. Healthcare has crept up as a percentage of the all funds budget in Texas to the point now where in, for the first time in history, it is equal to or greater than mm-hmm. education as a percentage of how much we spend. And, and, you, that, and that yeah. would have been unthinkable uh, when I first came into this office. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's racing. Yeah. It's hockey sticking upward. Yes. A lot of discussion about fixing school finance, not nearly as much discussion about fixing health care. And I wonder if you all missed on that because you could have expanded Medicaid. You could have fought with the Perry governorship and now the Abbott governorship about some kind of solution that would have been a Texas solution but would have accessed funds from Washington. Instead, nothing happened. We still have the highest uninsured rate. We still don't have nearly enough doctors, and the problem continues to grow from a budget standpoint. That's that's all accurate. Yeah. So why and didn't we, you all well, we why had, didn't you all fix it or, or come closer to well, fixing some, it? Some of us were open to uh, approaches that some other red states have taken, right? Um, but there weren't many of us. In fact, there were ballot referenda last night on a, in a couple of red states where they voted to expand Medicaid. Actually, weirdly enough, at a moment yes, when I, it seems yes, like I saw that. I federal saw government that less inclined than it was ten years right. ago. Right, and I, but I, I also, I think I've was pretty outspoken in the past about um, burying our heads in the sand on that issue. Yep, and uh, pretending that the medical costs aren't being paid by taxpayers; they're just different taxpayers than the state taxpayers. Right, our local county hospital districts are being burdened. Yep, um, and and um, you know so. It's reflected in our property tax rates. It's reflected in our private insurance rates. So medical costs are being paid for, uh, just maybe not in the best way. 
you're less inclined to look backward and be self-reflective. Let me ask you to look forward and mm -hmm. say, since you're not going to be in the building, there'll be a new speaker. We'll get to that in a second. Um, if you got to wave your wand over this legislature and say the top three agenda items for the 86th mm -hmm. should be blank, what would those top three items be? If you could I set think, the agenda. I think they would be what I've tried to always make them. Um, it's strengthening public education, um, strengthening higher education, including medical, the medical higher education, workforce development. The, the one, the, the overwhelming um, view that I hear from employers and business leaders around the state and around the country who invest in Texas um, has been consistently that they can't find enough qualified workers to do the jobs that they have uh, to create here. Right. And that starts with public education and feeds into higher education. I would, I would point to the agenda being developed by Tom Luce in his 2036. Texas 2036. That, I think that is going to be a very significant um, agenda and program for the future of the state long term, not just a two-year But only, Mr. Look. Speaker, if people listen. Well, I think they're going to listen. I think that this is the, that he is um, <clears throat> he's going about it in the right way, not expecting miracles in a two-year cycle, right. but looking longer term yeah. um, at an agenda that will be good for uh, the future development of our state in a, so that our state grows in a way um, where health care costs can be contained by, by um, better education, better jobs, right. more employment, um, and fewer, fewer on Medicaid. You use the word investment in talking about public ed and higher ed, which is a nice word. Everybody likes the word investment. A word that people like less but means the same thing is spending. Yeah. We need to invest in public education. I take to mean we need to spend more money. Same with higher ed. Are you suggesting that the state put more money into those two things? Yes. Where is it going to come from, Mr. Well, Speaker? Well, that's, that's the debate that has to be uh, concluded here in this but, building. But you, you presumably, after 10 years in the leadership office have a point of view about mm -hmm. where that money should come from. It can only come from one of two places. We can either spend less on other things and redirect those funds to education, public and higher, or we can generate more revenue, which could be some magic bucket of beans over here, or it could <laughs> just be raise taxes, raise fees, create more revenue from Texans. So what's it going to be, Mr. Speaker? Well, what should it be? What, what's most important is having, is having, the, um, is having the commitment to public education. It isn't just about the money, but we're growing, what, 80,000 new students in our public schools every, every year. year? Yes, sir. Um, and that, that's going to require more money. Um, so th it, takes a, it takes a commitment. It takes making But the, but the pushback would be we're funding growth. The question is whether you need to do more than simply keep up. And I think the, the answer to that is yes. It is. We have, we keep, we, our population keeps growing in the most difficult to educate yep. um, children, and they become more expensive to educate too. Right. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I'm looking forward to the recommendations of the commission yep. uh, that I didn't think it was necessary, but since we have it, we have some good people on it. You think they're going to have anything concrete to, pr to present? I do. Um, I do think they will. I don't, I don't know that they're going to agree um, on everything, but I'm right. hearing I'm hearing that they do agree on quite a quite a few issues. So I I, I think that's an important document that needs to be produced, um, and and I'm 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 actually more encouraged 
that public education is going to get more attention um, in this session than it has in the past. Because? I mean, I think because, well, number one, the, the election last night, um, I think, was maybe a course correction. So you think maybe. one of the byproducts of the change in the composition of the legislature from 95-55 to 83-67, and not just any 83-67, but this 83-67, augurs well from a public education standpoint? I do, and I think, um, I think the Senate alignment it's probably going to be somewhat friendlier to public education as well. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm not expecting miracles. And, and Texas government really isn't designed for dramatic, yeah, for right. miracles. So, but, yeah. but I do think that steady improvement yeah. and making sure that our priorities um, are consistent with what we need to grow in the right way, yeah. um, you know, can, can happen. But I ask people, Mr. Speaker, all the time when they say we should invest in public education, where should the money come from? W- waiting, in all sincerity, for an answer. And nobody well, c- seems to have an answer. Where, where's the money going to come from? Now, some people actually have an answer, and that is we shouldn't be spending money on border security. Two consecutive sessions, we've appropriated $800 million for border security, something that the Republicans in charge told us during the Obama years was the federal government's responsibility. Should we stop spending money on border security in Texas and redirect that money to public ed? I don't think we're going to stop spending money on border security, but I, I do think that it needs to, to be, um, I think there needs to be a strict accountability applied to make sure that the money we're spending is being right. spent for a good purpose. Why wasn't it applied over the last four years, Mr. Speaker? Well, I think there, there was some attempt to do that. Um, do we need to be spending as much as we are and keep, for, for a while there, we were doubling the the border security budget every two years. Well, in fact, DPS requested more money, in fact, during the last session, well, they're I think, always, right? They're, agencies are always going to request more money. Right. But there needs to be a, a hard look at it, and I think um, that if, we're, if we can't afford to spend as much as we are, they're, they're going to have to make the case um, that the security they're providing is yep. essential and, and worth that cost. I mean, the whole... I'm not saying that the rest of the state doesn't need to be um, secured and policed as well. I and mean, I think the DPS right. has an, has, has um, enormous responsibility to, to protect all of us, regardless of where we live. You, you might get a few votes in the House for securing the border with Oklahoma, actually. <laughs> so maybe you want to think about that on the way out. Um, you may have heard, Mr. Speaker, there's a speaker's race, a race yeah, to succeed where, you. Yes, I'm, I feel somewhat responsible for that. That's, uh, that's probably fact-check true. Um, who are you for? I don't have a vote. And I, I know that all five times I was elected speaker, I wasn't too fond of outsiders meddling in an election that's limited to 150 voters. You're about to be an outsider. I am about to be an outsider. And I'll, do, I'll tell you the... You have the, the same one vote I'll, as Michael Quinn Sullivan. I'll tell you, this, I'll, tell you the, uh, I'll tell you the advice that I've given to those members who have sought that from me. I was telling them until yesterday to turn off your phone and disengage from the speaker's contest because it doesn't really matter until the voters weigh in. Now we know who the voters, the universe of voters are. Now, now we know, there, the, now there now we know a, the 150. Yes. Right. Well, yeah, it, it, short of an election contest or two, possibly. But effectively, we know who's going to be yes. the voting population. That's in right. This, in this That's race, right. right. And so now the, the real discussion about who the next speaker is going to be can can begin. Yep. That's it. That's all you're going to say. Nothing well, else. 
the other the other thing I would say is that that those who aspire to be the the presiding officer here need to remember that this really isn't about their aspirations or their ambitions. It's about the aspirations and the ambitions of the colleagues who are voting for them. And that is all part of the conversation that we're that they're going to be having over the days and weeks ahead. You believe that an 8367 House as opposed to a 9555 House elects a different speaker or a different kind of speaker? I don't I don't know that it's a drastic difference, but it's a significant one. Um well, what, 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 I mean, one, yeah, one, one thing, Mr. Speaker, is that December 1st, the caucus is going to meet, as you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think you don't support this plan, or at least you told me some time ago that you didn't necessarily support the idea that the caucus should meet and anoint somebody and that that person should be the candidate. Well, I know, practically speaking, that the first one to 76 will be the speaker. Right. And um, I also noticed that several of the major proponents of this whole caucus process won't be here to vote in January. Right. Elections have a weird way of changing yeah. people's plans. Exactly. Right? But I guess my point is, does the caucus need to rethink the strategy? Because if you've got 67 Democrats as opposed to 55, you have an easier path if you're a Republican who wants to broker a deal with the other side, which in some quarters is like, don't even say that, right? <laughs> so is, my, that, is that what you think? Well, I, I think... Um, I think the whole caucus idea is one that reflects too much Washington, D.C., and not enough of the way we do things here. Yep. Um, on a practical side, I think that um, it's unlikely to get that far. I think the members are going to have discussions over the next few weeks, and I doubt that, I doubt that there's going to be much drama by the time the caucus meeting comes about. You think it'll be decided by December 1st? I would think so. It's in everybody's best interest to do it that way. Mr. Speaker, the last thing I want to ask you is, what are you going to do next? I know I tried to get you into journalism, not very successfully (laughs) earlier in this conversation, but what are you you going to do? What's what's your next life going to be? I'm I'm going to happily re-enter the private sector, which I've ignored for um, 10 years or more. Um, but I'm going to stay engaged in the policy debate. I'm going to stay engaged in politics. Um, I'm going to do what I can from a private platform um, to, to influence the future direction of our state and um, travel, speak, uh, talk about issues in a way that is um, where I'll have more freedom than being here uh, with my head down for 140 days. This is the definition of no freedom. It is the definition of, well, no, that's not entirely true. There is freedom here. Well, your ability to speak candidly and but you to don't do have, the things you want is different if you're outside right, the building we, than if you're inside. Well, you're bogged down with responsibility. Right. And you're responsible for a process um, of, of things that have to be done in 140 days. Yeah. So, you know, you're, 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 you're more limited, obviously, right. than you are in the private world where I'll, where I'll be starting in January. So I'm looking forward to, to staying in touch with people who've supported me around the state um, supporting others who believe in governing uh, the way that I have. And um, I think there's plenty of work to be done um, to improve our politics in this state and in other yeah. states. You foreclose on running for office again? No, and I'm getting, I'm getting encouragement from a lot of people around the state that, that they would like to see future public service uh, from me. But it's not something that I'm thinking about right now. Got it. Well, if you get tired of journalists uh, 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 ignoring you in San Antonio, call. We'll come down and talk to you down thank there you. when you're will, in private life. Mr. Speaker, thank you very much. Good to see you, Thank you, Evan. Good to be with you.
been listening to a conversation with Joe Strauss, outgoing speaker of the Texas House, a preview of the Point of Order podcast, which will launch officially in January. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. And of course, be sure to read our deep coverage of politics and public policy heading into and throughout the next legislative session. Check us out at texastribune.org. For the Texas Tribune, I'm Evan Smith.